Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business and more. My guest today is Jenny Green, former Team USA international athlete, motivational speaker and wellness expert. Our conversation is being recorded by Zoom. Jenny Green is a huge advocate for women in sports and helping everyone learn how to push themselves past their comfort zone to try new things and live life to the fullest. Raised in Grand Island in Nebraska's heartland, Jenny became a pioneering figure in the women's pole vault, breaking the Nebraska state record and the high school national record before going on to become a four-time Big 12 Conference champion and representing Team USA at the Junior World Track and Field Championships in Italy. At that World Championship competition, Jenny had a pole vaulting accident, landing on concrete from 14 feet in the air, breaking her back and ending her Olympic dreams. This personal experience resulted in Jenny learning new skills in positive mindset, resiliency, and the power of determination. She's been a motivational speaker across the country for various colleges, high schools, and community organizations, sharing her passion for overcoming obstacles and growing 1% better each day. Jenny, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Stuart. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we get into your development as an athlete, would you just share with us a little bit about your early years growing up in Grand Island? Yes. So born and raised in Grand Island, Nebraska, right in the, the center of the state and um, attended Grand Island Central Catholic and, and loved growing up there. I loved the Grand Island community. Um, from a very young age, I was very involved in numerous sports. You name it, I did it from dance, um, spent a lot of many years in gymnastics, uh, softball, golf, um, volleyball, and swimming, and just was really, really active and competitive from a young age and have two who I obviously biasly feel are the best parents um, and an older brother and um, really, really wonderful community. Did you feel kind of sporty just as a kid? Like, like kids tend to be kind of rough and tumble just generally, mm-hmm. but did you, um, did you know that early? And was that something your parents spotted in you and encouraged? I, I was both sides. I, I loved playing with Barbies growing up and I loved dressing up. And I also loved competing and loved sports and loved activities. And, and later in life, as I know we'll speak about later on, you know, everybody wondered if my parents pushed everything that I did on me. Like, and I was asked that numerous times, do your parents make you do this? And, and it was, and the answer was always no. If anything, my parents encouraged me to slow down and, uh, and, and do, you know, I was in band, show choir, drama. I mean, I did everything. And, and now knowing, looking back, it was this intrinsic drive that I had. I wanted to go out and throw a hundred pitches, you know, for softball. I wanted to go run on the streets at night to work on my form for track and field. Um, it was, it was pretty special now looking back, but to me, it was just, it was me. That was, that was my normal life. Did people around you see in your um, behaviors and, and your attitudes towards all sorts of different sports and maybe beyond sports to some of the other activities you talked about, this kind of urge to, to forge your head. Did others around you see that in you and did, did they have expectations? I think everybody knows. And if you do know me, uh, I'm very competitive. I think that was at a very young age. Um, that's 
one of those, and I know we'll talk to state-like versus trait-like. I, I was self-motivated. I was very competitive and it, it, and it was really more internal achiever. Um, I wanted to be the best and, and not in a humble and bra- or not in a bragging way, but I, if you ask my mother, um, we were actually speaking about it the other day. She said from a very young age, you always wanted to put the effort in. You always wanted to work extremely hard. Um, I wasn't necessarily always the most talented or gifted in an activity, but she said, I had the drive and the work ethic and I always wanted to be the best. And I wanted to help lift others and get there together um, as a team or whatever team sport I, I was with. So I, I think most people would say to this day that yes, they've known from meeting me um, from very on that I'm a competitive and achiever. Uh, you mentioned uh, to me earlier that you have a brother. So um, uh, younger or older? Older brother, about three and a half years, named Matt. Did Matt at that time show sort of similar characteristics or is, is, is Matt a, a very different human being? <laughs> we're, we're pretty different. Um, and I think that's so fascinating when you come to genetics and to have my brother and I, you know, from the same two parents who lived in the same household, who attended almost every teacher the same from preschool up to, to college, I tell people that my brother Matt is more physically talentedly gifted from both the athletic side, from the academia side, very, very gifted. He's one of the most incredible human beings that I know. I just think I wanted it more. Like I had, I had to work for my grades and I had to, I work at everything. And, and he didn't have necessarily the same internal drive. He did not go on to play sports in college. Um, he was a big golfer. He was a great tennis player phenomenal golfer still to this day, but he didn't have the drive to do it competitively at at that level. And and I did. So we grew up very, very different. When and how for you did it start to become clear that athletics was really something that you were going to be pursuing? At a young age, I was in dance, um, I believe probably age, I don't, I want to say three, four, five, six. And my mother put me into gymnastics at age five. And I think it became very, you know, everybody realized at a very young age that I'd be a really great gymnast. And so um, from a conscious standpoint, she's like, I'm not going to pay for both, but we'll, we'll pick one. And I picked gymnastics. And at that age, we, um, I became a level 10 gymnast by 10 years old. And I made junior Olympic team twice. I loved gymnastics. And, and it's crazy to think now, but I was going five days a week for three to four hours a day when I was nine years old. And to think of that now, um, I didn't do, at that point, gymnastics was, was my life. And at the age of 13, <laughs> I retired from gymnastics uh, going into seventh grade because I got too tall. As, I mean, I'm, I'm now five, seven and a half. And as we know, many of the, the gymnasts are small and petite. Um, but that self-body strength and that... Um, you know, the core and the flexibility and the body awareness and body kinesthetics. Um, I was running. So then in seventh grade, after I I quit gymnastics, I'd never done anything else. Like I hadn't played volleyball before. I had never shot a basketball because my life was gymnastics. And so in track, I was running around the track and um, somebody dared me to go try this thing over there uh, that was pole vaulting. And it was all boys. And, you know, to me, I'm like, well, I can do, if I can do flips on a four inch balance beam, I can do whatever that is over there. And so I walked over and I said, hi, I'm Jenny. You know, I'd like to try this. And uh, coach Bob Zavala at the time, he looked at me, goes, I'm so sorry. You can't, you're a girl. 
And I just stared at him and I go, well, what do you mean? And he's like, this girls can't do this sport. You, and I, I was very perplexed to her because if you know me, I, so then it just became a challenge. I didn't even care if I liked pole vaulting or not at that point, but I was like, this is something I'm going to do. So that started me into not only pole vaulting, but all the other sports of volleyball, basketball, diving um, that, I, that I went on to do in high school as well. I, I'm kind of stuck on this idea of just the amount of time you were spending in athletic pursuits. I'm thinking back to my childhood and thinking, did I, what, what did I put any amount of time into that wasn't just kind of like loafing around and making mischief? So do you look back and, and just think that that was unusual compared to other kids around at that time? Yes. I look back now and I, I think what an overachiever I was in everything. <laughs> uh, and, and I say that jokingly. Um, yeah, I started with gymnastics in, in high school. You know, I was on student council and I was in the band and then choir and I volunteered. Um, and it went on through college as well. And I worked all through college while competing um, as a D1 athlete. Uh, my whole life, I've always had a very busy schedule. And I think one, it's kept me out of trouble. We kind of, you know, I was so structured and, and I had that drive. I also was a straight A student and it was very clear to me that that's just what I wanted to do. I didn't, I didn't care about, you know, the drinking or the partying or anything that, you know, some people get into in, in high school. Every, my life was athletics. And as, as I found out later going through high school, you know, that the opportunity to go to the Olympics was, you know, an actual realization. Everything I did laser focused to, is this going to help me make the Olympic team? And if it didn't, I, I had no interest in it. What was your experience in sort of navigating worlds where there were some expectations about sort of gender and, and what you would do? And then this competitive urge, something within you that said, I I'm going to be a success in whatever sport I choose to pursue. I believe some of it. Well, obviously, there's the DNA of, of, of it. But I was raised, I was very blessed and fortunate to raise, be raised in a family where they never said they never questioned anything I wanted to do from a, you can't do that standpoint. My parents were phenomenal. Of if I had an interest in something they we would find a camp to test it out. Or if it was art, all, all my grandmothers were artists. And so I, I love the creativity side as well. So they never limited me. And it was always nobody in our family's ever done this or, or my mother never had experience in it or my father, but we're going to let you go and, and play and try and do it and see. So I think that was always this, I always felt empowered and I always felt that I had support and empowerment um, and to, to, to try anything. So the good came from my family. Um, being a female, high school was really rough. Girls can be very mean. Um, and it's something that I haven't talked about a ton, but I feel, I mean, I, I am pretty vocal about it. Like, probably the best four years of my life from an athletic standpoint were high school and into college and the experiences, you know, that we'll get into the hardest, most 
brutal, gut-wrenching four years of my life was high school because of some of my classmates. I mean, somebody who has as much self-confidence as I do, like I was bullied. I chose to hang out with the guys because the, I mean, there were some girls who were just so incredibly mean from a jealousy standpoint or because I was getting attention. I'm from a small town. So I was in the newspaper a lot, as you can imagine. And profanity words wrote on my locker. And, and I believe if you'd asked anybody, I mean, I, I didn't brag about it. I actually, it became the opposite. I would beg people not to, you know, my school not to put the Gatorade athlete of the year banner up. I did not want the high school clippings posted. I mean, I went through a really devastating, like my junior and senior years were really, really rough as far as females and friends. Um, and the time too, which is just unfortunate because it could have just been such a different way of empowerment. And instead of it, there was some um, depression, but bullying. Are you in any way in contact with any of your high school peers? A few. There, there's one that I still speak with a lot and, and she's been an, an, a great friend. But so just for reference, I graduated, I started with 75 people in my seventh grade class and we were at the same school through seniors and I graduated with 48. So I went from 75 people to 48 and a lot of those were females who transferred out of our class. Um, and you were kind of either the jock or you were in the drama or the, you know, the cheerleaders and, and some of my closest friends on the athletic side was just, I mean, unfortunate. I remember like I had a countdown until my mother made me a countdown of the days left until I graduated. And I remember like there was one day when I, I, I couldn't take, I walked out of school. I mean, me the most, <laughs> I'd never missed a day of school in my life. And, and we were actually in theology class of, of all days. And I, was just in tears and I just walked out of school. Um, I think in those days, I just knew I could only control what I could control. And I just tried to be as nice as I could to everybody. I just tried to focus on myself and my track and my friends. And um, I stay in contact with a lot more friends from college who went through similar experiences. Once you get to a track team and um, you're around a lot more like-minded and, and ability people when you when you've had some of the same experiences from the past it's very it's it's really sad and that's why I try to do a lot of speaking to the middle school and high school girls on empowerment and on you know be good and doing good and how simple those phrases are but how powerful it's tough and that goes back to the resiliency and the growth and what I've learned now but more than anything um I don't think there's anything better now than empowering other people specifically when you talk about females and female entrepreneurs and females who are breaking glass ceilings and barriers in athletics or in work or what I mean, there's no greater feeling when you get empowered women together who appreciate, who understand, and, and who truly want to see you do well um, and do good. It's, it's, it's amazing to find that group. I got more than just words. I got more than just words. You bring me songs sweet like the birds So I got more than just words I got peace in my mind I got peace in my mind Knowing that we've got the tide Gives me peace in my mind. The light.
So the coach told you that because you're a girl, you can't pole vault. And uh, so off you go to pole vault. So tell us the journey that took you up to the world championship. Yeah. So seventh grade. Yes. He said, no, I had to go home and I, I believe have my parents sign a note or get permission from my parents. And I did that. And I showed back up the next day and he's kind of like, ah, you're still here. And so then I had to sit out a week and watch to make sure that I was really okay. Um, that I really thought I was going to be, be okay to do this. And then finally he let me start and, and it's, it's baby steps. It's stick vaulting. It's kind of a question I get a lot um, is how you start pole vault and very similar. I say to golf where you start like stick vaulting, like if you're putting and you work your way back to your big drive and same thing with, with poles, um, the faster you become, the stronger you become, the higher up you move your hand grip on the pole. Um, but what was funny by the end of seventh grade, I was beating all the boys <laughs> and um, a few short months later and Coach Zavala will um, say to this day, I'm so glad you came back the next, the next day. Um, um, so middle school and high school, a lot of, in eighth grade, it still was not passed as a sport for females in the state of Nebraska yet. So I'd show up to the meets in eighth grade and one of two things, I either had to pull vault with the boys or I wasn't allowed um, by that school to compete. I loved when they let me pull vault with the boys. The boys hated it because I normally ended up beating all of them, which um, <laughs> can imagine would have been a little tough, but uh, it just became this journey and I fell in love with it. The biomechanics of pole vault, um, you know, there is a, a specific position that your body is supposed to be in in every millisecond to get the most energy out of the pole. So for those of you who might not know, I start about 100 feet back. You know, you, you run as fast as you can. We're a little crazy. We say like the pole vaulters are a little, you run as fast as you can carrying a 14 foot stick. And then you pretty much, you know, plant the pole in a pole plant box and it bends and, and you swing your body upside down and then it propels you up over this bar. Um, the different variations are like the standards uh, can move up and back. Uh, the, the crossbar that the, the bar sits on is only an inch and a half along. So there's wind plays into the factor, how your feeling plays in. So it's this culmination of, of lots of variables to hit the perfect jump. So fell in love with it, became a female sport for the state of Nebraska, my, I believe my freshman year, um, and just had the most amazing um, journey that you could have. I broke the, the state record my freshman year. I held it all the way through my senior year. For Nebraska, um, I was fortunate. I won the all-class gold all four years. And you don't even realize what you're doing, Stuart, as a freshman, because you're just being you. And, you know, I won state as a freshman. I held the state record. I think I broke my own state record like 16 times over the four years. But the morning of my senior year state track, when all of this was on the line, uh, that was probably the most pressured um, just to be able to accomplish something and look back and be able to show up that day and perform. And that's what, that's what I love about sports. There's so many talented people, but it's the competitors that can show up on the important days and, and execute. And, and that goes back to training and effort too. My junior year in high school, I got a call 
And it was uh, Coach Dave Nielsen, who was um, Stacey Jagiel, the world records coach at the time. And it was, I was invited out to the Olympic Training Center in Chula Vista. So my junior year in high school, there was 10 of us. And I went back my senior year and I trained out there again in the summer. And um, you talk about a dream and a vision. I mean, the Olympic Training Center in Chula Vista will forever hold the biggest place in my heart. And everything's Olympic rings, everything's Olympic colors. Um, there's Olympic athletes walking around the nutrition and they, they put you through all these tests and they want to see, you know, your projection. Um, you know, you're kind of like a little rat and going through it all. And, and what was crazy is when I was out there, um, I remember getting my projections. I jumped 13 feet, three inches at the time. It was the high school national record at the time that I had broken held. And I remember going out there and running all my sprints and my agilities and my jumps and then, and then all these crazy, and they calculate it onto a computer and it spits out that if you would hit your maximum strength, speed, this is how high you could jump. And I remember mine came back at like 15, high 15s. And the crazy part was the world record was like low 15s at that point. So I was projected to potentially have the opportunity, you know, that I had the capabilities to jump the Olympic record. And that's when it all really started sinking in for me that this is, this is real and that this, this could be a career for me. If you can, in words, capture what is the feeling of the point where you're sort of rocking back on your feet, on your heels, getting ready to begin the sprint all the way to that point where you let go of the pole and then kind of hit the mat. What does this feel like? It's a big adrenaline rush and I wish it was a lifelong sport because it's this feeling that you get addicted to as an athlete. But so I would use approximately six to eight poles, which a lot of people don't realize within a competition. So very much, I, you know, like a golf bag, uh, different clubs, so as I mentioned, yeah, you, you, how are you feeling that day? How did you warm up that day? And, and when you're in the back of the runway and you're evaluating, you know, the wind and if you have a big tailwind, it kind of gives you some extra energy because you know that that could be a potential big jump. It's laser focus. I had a routine. I mean, I would be talking to other athletes and, you know, I wasn't like laser focused in the whole competition. I would be joking around and encouraging them and um, the pole vault community is one of the best communities I've ever been involved in because it is such a unique sport. But yeah, you're on the back of the runway, you laser in and you just go through your motions. I went through myself, my visualizations, my self-talk. Um, and then, you know, it's almost like rip it and grip it. They say like, all right, like you get to that point, you're on a timer and you wait for that feeling and you pick the pole up and you get your hand situated and you rock back. And then it is game on you count on the way down a lot of pole vaulters count you know five four three two one lift pop and the lift is when you lift the pole up and the pop is when you jump off the ground and you know you're so aware of your body I mean you know within seconds I mean obviously it's only only two but you know within the milliseconds if it's going to be a good jump if you feel good um, you rotate through the shoulders and there's a lot of power and and it goes so quick but yes the moment where you know you cleared the bar and it, you, you're falling down and it's staying up. And if it's a, a high jump, I mean, there's, it's an adrenaline rush. I have goosebumps now because it's, uh, I miss it. I miss the feeling.
let's get to the World Championships in mm-hmm. Italy. So tell us about how you got there, how you how you felt about being, you know, selected and part of Team USA, and and um, get us get us up to the competition and and to the point where you're you know you're there on on the runway. Um, so after my freshman year, I attended the University of Nebraska. Was a proud Husker. Uh, Coach Rick Attig was one of the best uh, coaches in in the world for pole vaulting. My first day at college, I walked into the track and I came in as a four-time state record holder, you know, high school national record holder in my event. I mean, came off the, you know, and, and I was never like braggy and boast, like it never, like I said, just from the experience prior, I like didn't talk about it with anybody, but I walked into the track and a senior grabbed me, Becky Brash, <laughs> she's a shot putter. She goes, look around, everybody in here is a state champion. Like that's the base level now. Now it's who's going to be a national NCAA champion. And as I got it, like, but that's where, when I say I have way more friends from college, because if you were to ask, I'd say 80% to 85% of those girls went through a similar journey in high school that I did and not a fun one. And then you get around these people who encourage, empower, motivate, pull along, you know, on the last lap. I mean, you have all these unique, athletic, crazy individuals together as a team. And there, there's nothing like it. So my freshman year was story storybook. I was Big 12 freshman of the year. I won indoor and outdoor conference, which was pretty rare. I broke the Big 12 conference record. I you know, went to NCAAs, tied for second, received third. And um, so dream. I mean, I was, on, I was on top of the world with all hopes to qualify. And I'd hit the 2004 Olympic trials mark. And so obviously that was my goal. I had that summer before the Olympic trials had qualified because of my age, I competed as a junior. Um, so I had, I had won um, nationals for, for USATF, United States track and field. I won nationals, which qualified me to be on team USA. They, they took the top two. So it's myself and, and Stevie Marshall from Washington. That was a huge goal of mine. I mean, so you're in Team USA, you have all the gear, you're with everybody. We flew over, it was in Grosseto, Italy. And I, at the time with my age group, was ranked number two um, in the world uh, next to a girl from China. So you had prelims, we were over there for a few weeks. My polls actually got lost. So this is, and this is not, I'm not saying this as an excuse. This had nothing to do, to do with what happened, but my polls got stuck in customs. It was 2004. And I was, I'm stronger, I'm, I, I'm more muscular, but I'm quick on the runway. So I'm one of the bigger pole vaulters and I couldn't use anybody else's poles. So in prelims, I actually, a girl from Australia lent me her poles and, and I did enough to qualify for finals, but my poles were still stuck in Rome. My parents were over there, my coaches were there. We were in Italy, so we're trying to get my poles to me by finals. And I got them the day prior. So I was the only American to make finals. I woke up that day there was no other option that I was not going to end up on the podium with the gold medal hearing the national anthem and I just knew I, I, I knew that that was everything I'd ever worked for in my life was for this day July 16th of 2004 
I woke up, I felt phenomenal. I felt great. I took a lot of pride. I took the morning, mentally was ready, physically was ready. The proudest moment of, of putting on a Team USA uniform, being the only American to make finals. And, and we went to warmups and warmups were great. Everything was aligning. And then my coach said, Coach Attic was over there with me. My parents were over there. My grandparents were over there. We're in like an Olympic stadium. And, and Coach Attic said, okay, that's your last warm-up jump. You're good. You're great. Sit down, rest. And I'm like, I'm going to do one more. I'm like, I just, I just want to do one more. And me being stubborn, I'm going to do one more, <laughs> of course. Um, so he's like, okay. And on my last warm-up jump, I had a very technical error. You reach up high, plant the pole, and, and the goal is to keep your hands out because the, the farther your body is from the pole, the more pressure you apply on the pole and it'll bend. So it'll, it'll carry you in and up and over the bar. That vault, for whatever reason, I did it, my, my, it was me, I bent my bottom arm in. And it was, it was something I had been working on, but my bottom arm bent in too soon which then took the bend out of the pole. So it killed my momentum. It stopped my, my momentum and my rotation. So instead of going up and over the bar, I went up, I stalled out, and I came down. And behind the plant of box, there was about six inches of exposed concrete because the big pad had been pushed back. And I landed tailbone first in the sitting position from 14 feet in the air and just heard bones break. And I'll never forget, Stuart, I, in the movies, when it goes white and it's high pitch ringing, that's what happens. And I thought I was paralyzed because I, I couldn't move. I just, I laid there, whited out, screaming. And the first thing I heard was my mom. <laughs> um, I couldn't move. I was like, this is it. I knew I was going to fall because I could see it from 14 feet in there and there's nothing you can do. I knew exactly what was going to happen. I mean, I knew I was going to land on concrete and I, I laid there. People started rushing over. I couldn't move. Finally, after a few minutes, I started to move my fingers. I could move my fingers. And in my head, I was like, okay, I'm going to vault still. This is, this is good. I can move because there is, they brought a stretcher out and I refused to get on it. And I slowly got up and I remember like we had to go into like announcements and I could get up and I could walk and I knew something was wrong because I heard, I mean, I heard, I felt, I, I knew it wasn't right. But at that time there was no other option, but to still try to compete. So I stood up, um, I got up, we did TV interviews and introductions. I'm like bawling in minds from this accident still. And then they gave me one more warm up job just to make sure I was okay. And I took about four or five steps and tried and just fell, collapsed. And that, that was it. That was the end of my day for me. I, I was on a stretcher and I was heavily medicated and that was the end of Junior Worlds for me. So I'm just pausing for a second. I knew what was coming in the sense of, I knew that you had this accident. This wasn't a surprise to me. I didn't come into this interview mm -hmm. with this as a surprise. And yet your description of it actually is taking my breath away. I 
cannot even begin at this point to fathom the depths of not only the, the, the physical injury that somehow you managed to get up and even take four or five steps on a, on a final you know, warm-up jump that you just couldn't take. I also can't begin to fathom how you managed to get past the psychological trauma. What happened next then in terms of seeing your dreams evaporate and coming to terms with not only the physical but also the psychological injuries? My life went from I was number two in the world for my age group to not being able to walk in a second and to have your entire life's goals, dreams. I was going to be a professional athlete. I was going to go to the Olympics. You know, in my mind, I was going to go to the Olympics. I was going to live this really long career and, and you know, with two or three Olympics, hopefully. And your life just changes. And I do distinctly remember, and, and I don't know if I've ever said this out loud, I do remember on the stretcher for a, a split second, I said, why me in my head? Um, I took out, I, I had a confirmation ring. I took my ring off. I gave it to my mom and I just was like, I'm, I'm so mad. Like, why me? And then I, I look back and I know it was in frustration. I would never say that again. I, I've never said it since that day. I would never in my life, I never know like, why, why, what was me? Um, I spent four days on a stretcher. Um, the best part is coming back on the plane. They had to, they, we didn't know what was wrong with me. Um, we were waiting to get back to the U S so the doctors came in, they strapped me to the airplane seat and, um, and kind of, you know, passed out. And so I couldn't move. Um, and I got back and I was back at the university of Nebraska. And of course this obviously changed my, my collegiate athletic scholarship, you know, that was paying my way through college as well. So it was a year. Um, I went to three or four doctors. Everybody said, have surgery, just, you know, put the screws and rods in and you're done. And I said, I'm not like, I'm going to pull vault again. So I went and multiple doctors and finally I, I found somebody who would work with me and they're like, okay, you can be in a half, you know, Boston overlap brace, like a half body brace. I mean, take four months off. We can work on rehab and we'll see. It's not a guarantee. And I did it. So for about three, four months, day in, day out, only time I could take it off was to shower. I was in this half body brace during school, my sophomore year in college. And I, I did, I could walk, but I, re, I relearned everything else. I had to kind of relearn how to run. I had to relearn how to jump. I did um, hours of therapy a day. And I just knew that I was going to pole vault again. And again, looking back now, it was my mindset and there were my, my power positivity and the resiliency because there was no other way. But it was devastating. Like I remember I, I, I lived with track girls. And I remember my sophomore year, I'm sitting there in my brace and my, all my teammates qualified for NCAAs, and it was the day they left to go to Fayetteville and to go to indoor nationals, and I just sat there and bawled. <laughs> it, it was. It, it, the worst of it, I mean, my back would spasm. I would fall to the ground. I'd have to crawl to go get my phone to call my physical therapist. Um, it got that. I mean, it was that bad. The great news is through therapy and through support, I, I came back. Um, a year later, I actually, I pole vaulted again. Um, I will never forget, you know, it's kind of this comeback journey and I, we didn't know if I was ever going to get there or not. And I remember my first meet, you know, for reference in, in eighth grade and ninth grade, I was jumping at like nine foot bars in college. I was at 13 feet and my first meet back, we put the bar at nine feet and I cleared it and the whole place erupted. Um, and it was just such a sense of gratification. And so I, I went on to vault for two more years I won two more Big 12 titles. I got back to how high I had previously jumped, but the, it was such a new sport for females at that time. 
I, I couldn't keep up and, and my body hurt and it was hours of therapy. And, you know, I hit, I think B mark for, for the Olympic trials in 2008 then and provisional and got the doctors kind of looked at me and said, Hey, you know, do you want to walk when you're 40 or do you want to train? I'm like, well, of course train for the, <laughs> train for the trials, of course. Uh, but no, so I, I gave up a year of eligibility. Um, I had a really amazing job offer down in Naples, Florida, working with professional athletes, but I was, I was, I was bitter. Stuart, I, I hate to admit that I was bitter. I didn't watch the Olympics that year. I didn't watch track. I, I, I didn't follow it. I didn't look at results. I didn't want to be around it. I didn't help with camps. Yeah, I, I was bitter and it changed. I, it changed. I'm a whole different, I, I'm doing all those things again now, but it, it's hard when you, I didn't have a choice and that I didn't get to choose to retire in that situation. Unfortunately, you know, as many athletes going from college to pros, it is true. The one percenters that make it, you know, only 1% going through that and making it through, you know, to have the gift of perspective when I was 18 years old, it's changed my life forever. And it has made every challenge and obstacle so much easier knowing that I have the power and the control and then the mindset that this was a pivotal moment in my life. And it set perspective for me for the rest of my life. It occurs to me that you might have fallen into a depression, possibly even some kind of abusive relationship with drugs or alcohol or something like this. Anything that might mitigate this feeling that a dr an Olympic dream, being number two in the world in, in your age group, has been physically ripped away from you. How was it that you managed to to turn away and to turn towards a different future for yourself? I, I was very well-rounded, um, you know, in the saying of like, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Well, yes, obviously I, I was Jenny Green, the pole vaulter, and that I was, you know, the national record holder in high school and um, Team USA, but I was so well-rounded, again, that doing other sports, I worked all through college. So while all this was going on, I had a job at the Alumni Association there. I volunteered. I was big into um, athletics. I did hospital visits. Um, I had two jobs at one point. I was so well-rounded that I did, I did not let pole vault define me. Well, as heartbreaking and devastating as it was, that the, something that I'm so passionate about was taken away from me, I still had all these other components between my faith and my community and my friends and my work and school that I knew I had to finish on. And it was achieving. I wasn't going to just let it get me down. And I just, I, 
I, I shifted as we so often have to do and um, through, put myself into other activities in my life. Um, and I had a great support system as well. But there, there's, there was more to Jenny Green than just the pole vaulter. It's inspiring to know that there is an ability to turn towards something more positive, even if circumstances are or have been difficult. So what are some of these lessons that you've learned and these skills that you've acquired or, or honed from your own natural abilities that you're able to share and to share with other people? Yeah. So, and I didn't know it at the time. Looking back, I had the very fortunate opportunity to work with Dr. Fred Luthans. Um, he was um, a UNL management professor and he looked at Sonia Lubomirsky's work of what determines happiness and then Dr. Fred Luthans took it a step further and, and looked at this, the choice that we have, the choice that we have with these state-like traits that we can actually improve upon. And, and he calls it the hero within. Um, hero spelling out um, hope, efficacy, resiliency, and optimism. And those are four behaviors that have been scientifically proven that we can improve upon. And looking back, that's what I just, I had high, I had high hope, I had high efficacy. I didn't know it at the time. I'm like, this all makes sense now. Um, but the great news is I know that there is some like innate behaviors that are pretty, you know, trait-like, but you start looking at these states and the behaviors and what you can control. And so that's been a lesson for me. And, and some of my talks of like how to become more hopeful, how to become more confident and, and more resilient. You know, we also looked at this great story of, of Roger Bannister. So he was an English, a British runner. Um, he's a mid-distance runner, and he, he wanted to be um, a physician. And this was back in the 1950s, and nobody on, nobody on the earth had ever run a sub-four-minute mile. It, they said it couldn't be done, the lactic acid, your heart would explode, we're just not physically capable of doing it. And he's like, no, I think I can. And that takes unique mindset too, just like for myself, I can, I can be a female pole vaulter and he trained and he trained. And in 1954, he ran a sub four minute, he ran three minutes, 59.4 seconds mile and the place erupted. And I say this because it's this paradigm shift of this is the way it always has been. And this is the way it can be. But the most fascinating thing about the, the Roger Bannister story is after he proved that it could be done over the next two years 50 five zero 50 other runners 50 runners ran a sub four minute mile and that blows my mind to think like okay never on planet earth had a human clocked a sub four minute mile ever one person who believed in himself and trained and put the work in and the effort in did it and that inspired and showed to others who might not have been as confident or needed, you know, needed to see it done first. And so many of us live in that world and 50 went on to break it. And now obviously hundreds and thousands have, but that's a really unique story as well that it's amazing when you, and not a jealousy thing, but when you allow other achievements of people who are relatable to you, you can physically build that confidence and you can, they can be inspired to help you do more than what you ever thought possible too. I know you're humble, but you, you perhaps are a Roger Bannister to people you now encounter. I hope I am. And I, and I say that the, the tri-city areas of Grand Island, Hastings, Kearney has a huge influx of female pole vaulters. And it would be a, a very proud moment for me that if I was able to pave the way for future 
female pole vaulters. I held the high school state record for almost 20, 19 years, and it actually was broke this past year. And I was so elated for her. Um, records are made to be broken. It was something that was very proud to me, but it means that um, the sport is increasing. Um, there's more females doing it. So, I mean, I would be honored that if I had any part in the success of, of high school, of female pole vaulters in the state of Nebraska or, or at the University of Nebraska. You mentioned in your bio a lesson around growing 1% better every day. Mm-hmm. I don't quite know what that means. And I wonder if you might share what, what, what that actually entails. Yes. Um, here's my little secret. First of all, uh, dry erase markers are my best friend. And this has been something that I have used since college. So I, and to this day, if you go into my, my bathroom mirror, I write all over my mirrors with dry erase markers. I wrote quotes. I wrote verses. I have my 40% um, for choice and I have 1%. I'll send you, I'll send you a photo to it. Um, my whole mirrors are covered and, and it started in college and I had quote my motivational quotes up there. The, the theory behind mine thought behind 1%. When people go to make a change, they often wish or think of this huge, magnificent like change, um, whether it's losing 20 pounds, whether it's climbing a 14 footer for the first time, it's the, in their minds, it's a big jump. And so often if we try to do that overnight, we're going to, most of us are not going to succeed. And so this notion of 1% better every day, 1% is not that much, but the key to making change in your life is consistency. So I often do um, the college rule paper. This is what I challenge people to do and to any of the listeners. And I used to do it with a bunch of the sporting groups I worked with. Take a college rule paper. And on the left-hand side of the bar, if you do July 1st, July 2nd, July 3rd, July 4th, and you write out every day that month. And if you put it by your bed stand, I would challenge you to at the end of the day, reflect on how one, you did something that improved your life by 1%. Small. And if you are consistent and always having a growth mindset and you start adding all those 1% up, but in one month, that's 30% better. In 365 days, that's 365% better. So to go from zero to 100% change is not likely, but if you can do 1% better each day and acknowledge it and be proud of yourself for that, that mini, and if you can stay consistent and put the work in, that's when you're going to see life changes. There was such a clear, understandable and truly world-class dream that you had to be an Olympic competitor and an Olympic champion. And so we've talked about how that didn't come to be. And I'm wondering now if you have another dream or aspiration that occupies your passions, and if it's as clear as that, or if it's actually a little more open and nebulous. What is your aspiration now? It's a great question. (laughs) I feel, I'm a true believer and everything happens for a reason. Um, and, you know, and whether it's a reason, a season, a lifetime, I reflect back and I say, okay, I fortunately, you know, did not achieve my goals of making the Olympic team. Had I done that, I probably would still to this day, hopefully, uh, be, be training and be narrow focused and be about, you know, my, me pole vaulting. Through this unique opportunity, it has led me to numerous careers in athletics, um, working with um, NFL athletes, working with collegiate athletic teams, sharing my story, motivational speaking, leading me here today to speak with you. 
So I look at it as I now have this opportunity to share my story and if in if any way can help shift and, and from a growth mindset or a positivity standpoint, I've probably been able to uh, impact or be around or surround um, more people now that I'm not doing that. And, and, and I volunteer coach, I, I do pole vault camps. And now I'm, I try to give back as much as I can to a sport that gave so much to me. And that's where I spend my time and energy and not just pole vault, anything athletically. And I feel it so helps females at a young age build such confidence. And that is what I'm so passionate about and that I'm to empower females um, and males too. But just knowing everything I went through, um, my athletic background and the confidence that it gave me that I've carried on to this day to my relationships, to my professional, um, now being at Walcoa and hopefully just trying to help others build the best version of their lives. My guest today has been Jenny Green, former Team USA international athlete, motivational speaker, and wellness expert. Jenny, it's been just a remarkable conversation. I'm so glad that you shared that with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. People joke now that I'm competitive. I'm like, oh, I'm so mellow now. I'm so <laughs> chill. And people still think I'm like crazy competitive. I'm like, oh, you have no idea. <laughs> That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at livesradioshow. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Live's Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more.